0: Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and this you're listening to episode 153 of the Astrology Podcast. So today what I'm going to be doing is uh, it's been a while since I've done a solo show of the podcast, and I've been meaning to, one, do a solo show for a while, and two, I've been meaning to give a lecture or to record a lecture on a specific technique or a specific technical approach that's kind of unique to my approach or that's tied in with my approach to Hellenistic and modern astrology. And one of the techniques that I've mentioned frequently over the years is the uh, technique known as annual perfections, which is a Hellenistic time lord technique. And I know I've mentioned it a bunch of times. Um, I've alluded to it a bunch of times. Occasionally, I've made sort of brief remarks about how to calculate it, but I've never actually done a show where I really went in depth on this technique. So I'd been putting it off. It's also something that I wrote about in my book, and it's also something that I teach in my course so there's oftentimes this um or over the years I've had this tension between you know how much to present on the podcast for free, just publicly versus how much to hold back in my course. So I feel like at this point there's enough in the course, and I go into much detail in my full nine hour lecture on this technique that it would be okay to do a somewhat brief, what I'm going to shoot for is let's say like a 90-minute treatment of annual perfections as kind of a beginner's introduction to this technique. So it will get a little bit complicated at different points, but one of the things I'm going to try to do is tie this back into other episodes of the podcast that I've done in the past where you can I'll put some links and some references to episode numbers so that if you'd like to, you can go back and you know, listen to other episodes that I've done in the past for more information about some of the concepts that I'm going to mention along the way here. So if you feel a little in over your head, don't worry about it uh, if this is your first time hearing about the technique because um, yeah, there's a lot of other concepts that go with it. And usually, this is one of the techniques that I present at the very end of my course on Hellenistic astrology once we've gone through a lot of basics. So here I'm going to try to review some of those basics quickly, but for the most part, you know, just kind of take it in and think about it, let it let it sit with you on your your mind if this is your first introduction to the technique and don't worry if it seems a little overwhelming at first. All right, so last things, if anyone has any questions as we go, go ahead and just let me know in the chat box here in the Zoom window. And uh yeah, let's go ahead and get started. All right, so for those listening to the audio version, I'm going to be sharing slides, and I'll probably share a PDF or a video with the slides, uh, which will be available through the podcast website or through my page on YouTube. So you can go there if you'd like to see the visuals that are meant to accompany this presentation. Otherwise, if you're here watching this live or if you're watching the video version, you should see the slides uh, along with a little window with my camera on. All right, so the title of this lecture is Annual Perfections, a Basic Time Lord Technique. Uh, And I'm recording this, I should say, on, what is it? It's Tuesday, April 24th, 2018. Uh, I started a few minutes ago, probably at like 1.05 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 153rd episode of the Astrology Podcast. All right, so what we're talking about today this is this is a lecture on a specific technique but it's also kind of an introduction to a broader range of techniques or a lost set of timing techniques known as time lord systems or time lord techniques from the Greek word chronocrator which literally means lord or ruler of time so it turns out that one of the things that's happened over the past 20 years about 20 25 years ago some astrologers in the west got excited about going back to recover uh, some ancient techniques from Greek and Latin uh, astrological traditions from about 2,000 years ago. And one of the things that they found, they didn't actually initially know what they were going to find during this process of going back and looking at old texts and translating them. But one of the things that they ended up finding is that there was this lost system of timing techniques known as Time Lord systems. So the Time Lord systems are important because the basic premise underlying just about all of them is that there's certain uh, basic latent potentials in the natal chart that are indicated by the different placements in the natal chart and the different combinations, but not all of those placements are activated at all times. Uh, But instead, the placements lie dormant uh, until the placements or the planets involved are activated as time lords, uh, according to one of these techniques, so the time lord techniques are actually the Western equivalent of the Indian dasha systems, and the Indians have been using dasha systems for about two thousand years now, at least. The most popular of which is called the Vimshottari dasha system, and while it's calculated much differently than this technique is, it has some similarities in the way that it's applied and used especially in terms of the concept of the technique being used in order to activate the latent natal potential of certain planetary placements. So one of the things that's interesting about that is just even though in the West, we're just recovering some of these techniques now, the Indians have been using them for 2000 years. So there's some interesting things that we actually could learn from the application of the Western Time Lord techniques by studying how the Indian astrologers still apply them to this day so uh, as a result of that a friend of mine named kenneth johnson and i actually recorded an episode very early on in the podcast on episode 30 where we talked about and compared um how the hellenistic time lord techniques are similar to in their application and sometimes different to the indian dasha systems so you can see episode 30 of the astrology podcast for that discussion i had with kenneth johnson a few years ago so in terms of discovering the Timelord techniques or rediscovering them, uh Vadius Valens, who is an astrologer who lived in the second century, mentions at least seven Time Lord systems that he was aware of. So there's actually several of them. And one of the problems with these systems is that most of them didn't survive into modern times, so we're just rediscovering them now. Uh perfections is actually one of them that survived in some traditions, but for the most part, it's not a well-known technique like secondary progressions or transits or solar arcs are. And part of that, I think, is that the original application of the technique and the original way that it was applied was lost over the past 2,000 years. So part of what I'm going to be trying to present to you today is the original approach to using this specific Time Lord technique. All right, so annual perfections is actually the most widespread time lord technique that was used in the Hellenistic tradition about 2,000 years ago. So let's say roughly between the 1st century BC and the 7th century CE, um, this is the one time lord technique that almost every ancient author whose work survives uh, either used or at least mentions in passing if they don't give an actual treatment of it. So there's some astrologers who Just mention it very briefly, like Ptolemy. There's other astrologers like Vadius Valens where he spends at least three books of his anthology going back and forth and and revisiting the technique several different times and giving different modifications of it and and showing different ways to use it. He also uses uh, dozens of example charts in order to show us how he uses the technique. So for some astrologers, this was a really important and really crucial technique. Despite that, uh, there was actually no name for the technique in the Hellenistic tradition, or they don't seem to have had a specific name for it. Uh, Some astrologers kind of refer to it indirectly as the technique that's used to determine the lord of the year or the planetary ruler of the year. So in terms of describing the technique, the name that we've given to it is partially just descriptive because what you do in order to calculate it, and I'll just mention this briefly and then I'll come back to it in a a slide or two, is that you just determine what the rising sign is or what sign the Ascendant is located in in a person's chart, and then you count one sign per year from the rising sign, and whatever sign you come to uh, when the count is finished, that sign and the ruler of that sign is activated as the Time Lord for the year. So that's why it was, and and we'll go back over that or we'll come back to that later and I'll show some diagrams and some examples so that you can see how that's done exactly or how that's calculated exactly. But basically, you're just starting from the rising sign and you're jumping forward at at a rate of one sign per year for each year of the native's life. So the term perfection that we use to refer to this technique, it actually derives from a Latin term that was used to refer to it, uh, which is perfectio which means a going away, uh, setting out uh, to a departure or to advance something. So it it basically means to advance or to progress something at a certain rate. So perfections can actually be done at a yearly rate, at a monthly rate, or even daily and hourly. For our purposes, we're just going to be doing annual perfections, which is moving forward one sign per year. So that's why it's called annual perfections. So, Arthur, do you have any questions? First off, in the chat box, so Arthur says, I'd appreciate a little bit about the sub levels if there's time at the end. Uh, I'll see if we can get to it, but it gets a little bit complicated getting into monthly and daily, and especially hourly perfections. So, I sometimes will use monthly perfections, but typically uh, I'll focus just on the yearly. This is really, I think, this technique is used best when you're just trying to get a, a general overview of the year although sometimes it can be useful doing the monthlies, it just gets a little bit complicated and a little bit overly complex. All right, so let's move on. So let's talk about calculating the technique. Um, Let's imagine a chart that has the Ascendant in Cancer. So we've calculated the chart and the Ascendant is in Cancer. So in order to calculate perfections, the basic premise is that uh, when you're born, Whatever sign the ascendant is located in, that sign and the ruler of that sign become activated for the first year of your life. So if you have Cancer rising, then the sign, the zodiacal sign Cancer, is activated for the first year of your life, basically from the moment you're born until your first birthday. Uh, Then the moon is also activated as the lord of the year for that first year of your life. So once you reach your first birthday, it then moves to, it jumps suddenly on the day of your birthday to the next sign in zodiacal order. And zodiacal order is always counterclockwise. So it jumps to, uh, in this instance, Leo, which is the second sign from the rising sign, and it would activate Leo and the Sun uh, as in the next year of the person's life from their first birthday until their second birthday. Then when they reach their next birthday, it moves to the next sign in zodiacal order, which in this instance would be Virgo. Then, once that year is up, it moves to the next sign in zodiacal order, which would be Libra and activating Venus, and so on and so forth. So, it's actually a surprisingly simple technique because you're just jumping forward one sign per year for every year of the native's life. But even though it's almost deceptively simple, because even though it's very simple to calculate, the actual interpretation can get kind of complicated and kind of interesting, as we'll see later. So, if you're just counting one sign per year from the Ascendant, of course, eventually it's going to come back around to the Ascendant when the native is 12 years old. So at 12 years old, the perfections complete the first cycle, and what it does is it basically basically comes back to the rising sign and then activates that sign over again at the age of 12 years old and then repeats the 12-year cycle. So at 12 years old, the Ascendant and the rising sign are activated again, At 13 years old, the second sign from the rising sign or the second whole sign house is activated again, and so on and so forth. So every 12 years, basically the cycle repeats and starts over again at the Ascendant. So eventually at 24 years old, the perfection cycle comes back to the Ascendant. At 36 years old, at 48 years old, and so on and so forth. So, an easy way to calculate the technique is basically just to divide by 12 and always know that it starts out every 12 years again at the ascendant. So, 12, 24, 36, 48, 60, and so on and so forth. So, I've actually created a handy diagram that you can use to calculate perfections for the first 71 years or so of your life. And You can access it right now. I uploaded it to my website, so it should be available there right now at HellenisticAstrology.com slash perfections dash wheel.pdf. So that's a PDF that you can print out and you can use this in order to, to sort of memorize, depending on your age, what perfection year you're in. And this can be kind of useful because there's certain years of a person's life that are always associated with certain perfection years. So as I've said before, 12 and 24 and 36 are always first house perfection years where the rising sign and the first house are activated. But there's other perfection years that are um, easy to memorize as well. Like 18 years old, you can see over on the far right, is always a seventh house perfection year. Or let's say 21 years old is always a 10th house perfection year, and so on and so forth. So there's certain years that for everyone are going to be. Activating the same part of the chart, basically. Uh, there's another worksheet. So the other one's more of a diagram. This is more of a worksheet that I created for calculating perfections to make it uh, even easier. So you can access this one at hellenisticastrology.com/perfections-worksheet.pdf. So with this, all you do is basically you just figure out in the top row uh, what your rising sign is. And then in the left column, you find your age, and then you line up your age, and that helps you to find out what sign is activated for you in a given year. So it's basically just a quick and handy way of calculating uh, annual perfections for any year in your life. And this is also a printable worksheet that you can use, so you can find it at that URL uh, if you want to use it. All right, so there's a couple of preliminary things before we get into the interpretation of the technique. One of them is that I'm going to be using the traditional rulership scheme. And this is the, uh, the original system, basically the symmetrical system for assigning uh, each of the visible planets to different signs of the zodiac through the original rulership scheme. So with this, uh, it basically assigns the Sun and the Moon, the two luminaries to Cancer and Leo. And then the rest of the visible planets are assigned flanking out in zodiacal order based on their relative speed and distance from the Sun. Uh, So Mercury gets the two signs on either sides of the luminaries, Gemini and Virgo. Venus gets Libra and Taurus. Mars gets Scorpio and Aries. Jupiter gets Pisces and Sagittarius. And Saturn finally gets the two furthest signs from the luminaries, which are Capricorn and Aquarius. So a lot of people may already Know this system, some of you may already use it. I just wanted to mention it so that people, so that I'm not taking anything for granted in terms of the approach that I'm using in this lecture. So even if you don't normally use the traditional rulership scheme, you may want to play with it and may want to experiment with it for the purpose of this technique, or at least I would recommend doing so uh, because you might find it more effective uh, within the context of this specific technique. The other system that we're going to be using, the other concept or technique that we're going to be taking for granted here is the concept of whole sign houses. So in whole sign houses, all you have to do is figure out what sign the Ascendant is located in, and then whatever sign that is becomes the first house. So for example, if the Ascendant is in Aries, then the entire sign of Aries becomes the first house. Then Taurus becomes the second house, Gemini becomes the third house, Cancer becomes the fourth house, and so on and so forth. So I feel like I've talked about whole sign houses enough on the podcast so far that most listeners should probably already understand and, and take for granted that that's what I'm using. However, if you'd like to go back and listen to one of my early lectures where I tried to, to, to make the case and outline the case for whole sign houses, uh, check out episode 52 of the astrology podcast, which was a previous lecture that I did Uh, sort of promoting whole sign houses, uh, which I used a sort of tongue-in-cheek title at the time, which is whole sign houses, the best system of house division. Uh, I probably should have toned that down a little bit, but for our purposes, it's still a useful lecture in terms of understanding the basics of that approach. And part of what we'll be seeing once we get into the example charts later in this lecture is sort of demonstrating how whole sign houses actually work in practice. So that's part of the reason I wanted to do do this lecture as well, because it, it it sort of will help to tie together some of the techniques that I use and take for granted on the podcast and show you how they work in a more dynamic fashion when you're actually trying to do readings and interpret charts. All right. So we're going to start with now we're going to start with our first interpretive prin- principle, which is that when the perfection comes to a specific house, uh, the topics associated with that house are going to be activated for that year of your life potentially. So, that's a pretty simple concept. So, if the perfection comes to the second house, then it means that financial matters may play a greater role in your life in that year compared to other years. Or if the perfection comes to the seventh house, then matters pertaining to relationships or partnership could become more prominent in that year compared to other years. If the perfection comes to the 10th house, then career matters can sometimes take a greater part of the focus of the year, or there can be a specific event related to career matters that ends up standing out and becoming characteristic of that year as a whole. You know, maybe there's some particularly important career development. That occurs for you in that specific year. So part of the terminology here is that I I use a specific terminology when talking about perfections that's kind of like shorthand, which is that, you know, if a person is in a if the tenth house is activated according to perfections in that year of the person's life, I'll say that they're in a, a tenth house perfection year. Or if the second house is activated, I'll say that they're in a second house perfection year. So all that means is just that the perfection has come to that specific house. And so that's going to be the focal point when we're talking about uh, what the perfections mean in that particular person's life for that specific year. Uh, But it's just useful shorthand, and I wanted to mention it and get it out of the way so that you understand what I mean when I say a 10th house perfection year or a 7th house perfection year or what have you. So here's a basic diagram that just has some of the significations um, of each of the twelve houses, using some of mostly traditional significations, but also or some mostly Hellenistic significations, but also some medieval and a few modern ones as well. So these are some of the topics that you might expect to arise. This is not certainly all of the topics that you would expect to arise, but these are some potential topics that might arise from a traditional or an ancient standpoint when certain houses are activated in your chart according to perfections in a given year. So first house traditionally was associated with the life, the body, the health, um, but also the native's character and their psyche to some extent. So the first house is the house where the sky and the earth meet, and it's also the house most closely associated with the native and their physical incarnation, which traditionally was conceptualized as the union between the soul and the body. So first house perfection years are interesting when they happen because sometimes the first house will pertain to the physical body. So it can have to do quite literally with things that happen to your body, which can include health issues, but it can also include issues pertaining to um, your appearance or how you look or act or present yourself. Um, But it can also have to do with Things pertaining to your character, to your mind, or to your intellect in some sense. So first house perfectioneers, when the first house is activated, can pertain to positive or negative things that are happening to you psychologically or in terms of your character or how you're actually acting or behaving in the world in some broader sense. The second house, of course, is the house of uh, finances, and it pertains to your livelihood and things like your possessions as pretty straightforward Literal manifestations. The third house is siblings, learning, and travel. The fourth house is your parents, your home, and your family and living situation. Fifth house perfectioneers often pertain to things like uh, children, pregnancy, sometimes. Sometimes uh, sex can come up as a topic that's associated with the fifth house and certain perfectioneers. The sixth house is associated with illness, injuries, uh, subordinates or people who work in a subordinate role underneath you, and things that you do for work. The 7th house is relationships, marriage, partnership in a general sense, as well as other people in a general sense, like one-on-one relationships. The 8th house, uh, death, inheritance, and financial matters that belong to other people or possessions that belong to other people is a common theme that comes up. Ah, uh, ninth house: travel, foreign places, foreigners, and education. Tenth house: career, reputation, advancement, and superiors. Eleventh uh, house: friends, groups, hopes, and alliances. And twelfth house traditionally was loss, sickness, enemies, and confinement. So these are pretty straightforward. Um, you know, not getting into like deep, sort of psychological or other type significations here, but sometimes just. Very straightforward literal manifestations of certain houses from a traditional standpoint. So let's look at some examples really quickly in order to show you what kind of things sometimes happen in certain perfection years when certain houses are activated in the chart. So this is my first example. It's the birth chart of Lisa Marie Presley, and she was the, or or is, the daughter of the famous musician Elvis Presley. And Elvis actually died when she was nine years old, but she didn't inherit his entire she was his his, um his heir, basically, but she didn't inherit everything from him. His inherit her inheritance was held in a will or in a trust until she turned twenty-five years old, according to his will. So what's interesting about that is the day that she turned twenty-five uh, she inherited Elvis's entire estate, which was estimated to be worth about a hundred million dollars. So that's interesting because if you do the perfections, so I have the numbers written around on the outside of the wheel. So twenty-two is an eleventh house perfectioner, twenty-three is twelfth house, twenty-four is first house, and twenty-five is second house. So basically, as soon as she turned twenty-five years old, she switched into a second house perfectioner, and then suddenly. That was the year in which she inherited uh, the entire estate of her her father, who had died years earlier. So the general point is just that sometimes financial matters can become more important, or can become the focal point of the year in second house perfection years. So obviously, that's not going to happen to everybody that has a second house perfection year, nor is it going to happen every time. A specific person has the same 2nd house perfection year, uh, but there's some reasons for that that we'll come to and we'll we'll talk about later about why specifically in her chart this might have been more important than it might be for for me or for you or, or somebody else with a different chart. So we'll come back to this chart a little bit later. Here's another perfection. So this is the birth chart of Robert Kennedy, who was the brother of US President John F. Kennedy. And this case is really striking because Robert turned the, the native whose chart this is turned 38 years old just two days before his brother John F. Kennedy, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in nineteen sixty-three. So thirty-eight years old is interestingly enough a third house perfectioneer, with the third house, of course, being the primary house that's associated with siblings. Uh, according to most traditions of Western astrology, so I have the numbers written around the corner around the the side so thirty four is an eleventh house perfection year thirty five is twelfth house perfection year thirty six is first house thirty seven is second house, and finally thirty eight is a third house perfection year, so he switches into the third house perfection year, according to perfections, theoretically, siblings should be an important topic. That would come up that year, and two days later, his brother is, you know, famously assassinated. So, the loss of a sibling in this instance, where it wasn't necessarily something positive, but instead it was something negative. So, this is another chart that we'll come back to a few times later in order to understand better why it went in a more negative direction rather than a more positive direction. Here's another perfection year. So, this is a, a client chart of somebody who turned. 39 years old. So he moved into a fourth house perfection year. So the fourth house is activated according to perfections. And therefore, we would expect the home and the living situation to potentially take on greater focus in that year for some reason. But what ended up happening is that one of the major events that occurred that year is that his house actually caught on fire and burned to the ground. So he actually lost his home and his living situation or his home and living situation was majorly disrupted in that specific perfection year when the fourth house was activated so what i'm trying to demonstrate here is just that sometimes you just have to sometimes the technique can be can be very straightforward and very literal in that there's something associated with the topics just the basic topics associated with that house that can sometimes become the focal point of some of the major turning points or some of the major events that will occur in that specific year of your life. So that's why it's important to pay attention to you know, a perfection year that's coming up and to think about what those topics might be. All right, so now we introduce our first additional interpretive principle and our first modification of the principle that we just looked at. And the first additional modification is the notion that when you calculate the perfections and it comes to a specific sign and activates a specific house, if there are any natal planets in that house in the birth chart, then those planets will become activated as well in that that year of the native's life. So the first question you need to ask, ask yourself is, are there any natal planets in the house that has become activated? If there's not, then you don't need to even consider it because there's nothing to consider. However, if there is, then you want to uh, think about what those planets are and what they are doing or what they are signifying in that specific person's chart. Because whatever it is that they signify, for better or worse, is going to manifest in that year of the native's life. So this is an additional way that this technique works as a time lord technique because this is one of the ways that planets get activated is if they're in the sign that the perfection has come to, then they become activated as time lords. So therefore, they're able to unleash the natal potential that's latent in those placements uh, since the moment of birth. So there's a few things that you want to ask yourself in terms of what the planets are. Um, One of the things that makes makes it easier that you can use to kind of distinguish between placements is that typically the benefics and the malefics tend to be more distinctive when they're activated in a specific sign or a specific house. So the benefics, of course, are Venus and Jupiter, and the malefics are Mars and Saturn. So typically speaking, as a rule, when the benefics are activated in a specific perfection year, uh, things will tend to go smoothly or will tend to be more easy In that area of the native's life. Whereas if the malefics are activated, things could tend to be more challenging, or there could be some obstacles or setbacks in that specific area of the person's life that's being activated. So one of the things I should say here, I mean, I've done I've said this and I've had this discussion a few times before in the past. I know one of the first episodes I did with Mark Jones, we talked extensively about. The concept of benefic and malefic planets and the usefulness of that concept in astrology. And one of the ways that I defended it is by saying that benefic and malefic typically pertains to the subjective experience of the native in terms of whether they're liable to experience the events in their life that occur at that point in time or in that particular area of their life as being more subjectively preferable or unpreferable and that generally speaking the benefics will tend to when they're activated activate activated coincide with events that are experienced as more subjectively preferable whereas the malefics will tend to be experienced as events and circumstances that are more subjectively let's say unpreferable so we'll see here in some of the upcoming examples some instances of that now that doesn't always mean that every time a benefic is activated that only good things are going to happen to you that year, nor does it mean that every time a malefic is activated that only bad things are going to happen. Um, because there are, for one, there's mitigating conditions, and you really have to take into account the condition of the planet in the birth chart in terms of determining whether the significations it's going to provide are going to be more constructive or more destructive. So planetary condition plays a huge role here in terms of determining how the planet will express its significations. And we'll get into some conditions for determining that here in just a little bit uh, with things like sect, for example, is a major factor when you're looking at the benefics and malefics. So there's some questions. So Sheila says, do you consider outer planets like Pluto in the 6th house in a 6th house perfection year? Um. Yeah, I would if they're in the Sign that the perfection comes to. So I wouldn't necessarily pay attention to them as rulers, but I would pay attention to them if they're in the sign that the perfection has come to, especially if they're conjoining another visible or inner planet in that sign, because they often, especially, act as modifying factors for the inner planets. And that is like a relevant piece of information in terms of interpreting, you know, if. The perfection year comes to Venus, and the person has Uranus conjunct Venus or Pluto conjunct Venus. That's going to characterize things a little bit differently when that Venus planet is activated compared to, you know, if Venus doesn't have any outer planets configured to it, or, or if it just has Jupiter conjoining it, or something like that. So, whatever, again, it's just coming back to the principle that whatever the natal potential or the natal promise of the planet is that's what it's going to deliver when it's activated as a time lord. So it's just taking into account all of those things in terms of the basic interpretation of the placement and what it should mean in the birth chart for the native's life as a whole, and then saying that some of those things that it indicates in the native's life as a whole are going to be delivered in that year it's activated as a time lord. Arthur asked, does dignity of a malefic affect how malefic it is? Yeah, because that's one of the major mitigating factors is that dignified malefics tend to behave themselves more, and that tends to mitigate it so that typically dignified malefics will tend to act more constructively and will not fall on the extreme end of the malefic spectrum. They'll tend to move more towards the middle and will tend to be more moderate. All right, so. So let's go back to our first chart example, which was Lisa Marie Presley. So uh, remember, she was the daughter of Elvis. Elvis died when she was nine. She turned twenty-five, and she inherited his hundred million-dollar estate. So she inherited that at the start of her second house perfection year. But you know, obviously, you know, when I went into a second house perfection year when I turned twenty-five. I didn't inherit $100 million, so what makes things different for you know, my life or your life versus Lisa Marie Presley's life, at least in terms of her birth chart or what the birth chart indicates? And the first thing we notice right away immediately with that first modifying principle that we took into account, is that uh, which was that planets in the sign that have become activated are also activated as well. Right away that we see that she has a natal Jupiter in a day chart placed in the second whole sign house, so that means she doesn't she didn't just go into a second house perfection year, but she went into a second house perfection year, which also activated her natal Jupiter placement in the second house, so as a very basic delineation, you know Jupiter in the second house is just generally could be delineated as positive things potentially happening surrounding money or surrounding financial matters as the most basic blanket statement that you could make about somebody who has Jupiter in the second house. So she has that placement, and then in the specific year in which it was activated at the age of 25, she inherited $100 million and therefore had a positive financial situation happen in her life. So there's other pieces to this chart, there's other parts of it. So I think we're actually going to come back to this at least one or two other times to show additional modifications that help to further specify what happened in that part of her chart and why her chart was geared in that specific way. But already, we're starting to see you know, how you can further specify things by taking into account additional variables like planets that are placed in the second whole sign house. Uh, yeah, the the circle with an X in it is the lot of fortune. So, this example is actually funny because somebody on Amazon, I got like one not great review of my book on Amazon, and he specifically cited this example where he said in the book he thought I was like seeing patterns where they didn't exist, and he gave it like a three star out of five star review, and um, he said something to the effect that like. You know, everybody has a second house perfection year uh, when they turn 25. So, what makes Lisa Marie Presley any different? And for some reason, he completely overlooked the entire point of that example, which is that she had Jupiter in the second house in a day chart, uh, as well as a few other things that we'll mention later. So, I hope I'm conveying correctly. I'm not sure if I didn't convey it correctly in the book or if that guy, I suspect, just didn't get it. But just understanding the point that, you know, First, the first thing that we're doing is establishing what is the natal promise or the natal potential of the birth chart. And then, secondarily, we're applying the timing technique to figure out when those specific promises will be delivered in specific years of the native's life. All right. So, here's another example. So, this is a chart of somebody who they turned 18 in 1951 and moved into a seventh house perfection year. So her 7th whole sign house is Cancer, which contains Venus and the Sun in a night chart. So in this year, she actually met her future husband, and they began a relationship uh, together in that perfection year. And what ended up happening is eventually they got married, and they were married for more than 70 years. So they had a long and successful marriage together uh, after that point. But the point of this example is that They met when she was 18 years old, and she had Venus in the seventh house in her birth chart. So there was already sort of a positive promise for relationships being an area of her life that would go well based on the birth chart. And then that was delivered when she met her future husband in the year in which that seventh house placement was activated. Conversely, a more depressing example so this is the birth chart of. Former Vice President Joseph Biden, and he turned 30 years old. When when he turned 30 years old, I think uh, sometime in the 1970s, he similarly moved into a seventh house perfection year. Um, however, unlike the previous example, he had instead of Venus and the Sun in the seventh whole sign house, he had uh, Saturn in the seventh whole sign house. And what ended up happening is just about a month after his birthday. Um, his family was involved in in a horrific car accident, and his wife and his daughter were actually killed in that car accident. So there's a similar thing going on in terms of the perfection coming to the seventh house, the relationships and the marriage partner in particular being a major part of the focus of the year. But in his instance, the fact that there was a malefic there characterized his subjective experience of it as being more negative. So contrasting those two examples and just being able to make the broadest statement that you may experience some challenges in the sphere of relationships in this year, um, the ability to make that statement to me is incredibly powerful versus the previous example where you would say you may experience some positive things in the sphere of relationships in this year. So I'm, I'm restricting my delineation, I'm keeping it As basic as you can. You could obviously make a much more advanced or complicated delineation than that. And we'll get into some additional variables and nuances that you could take into account in order to make a more specific statement uh, as we go further into this lecture. But I just want to show you how we're starting out from very simple concepts and we're building them up gradually so that you can make reliable uh relatively straightforward statements about a person's life that actually come true sometimes in very literal ways all right so additional modifying principle um one of the really crucial additional factors and interpretive principles that's been recovered from ancient astrology that i mention on the podcast frequently is the concept of sect so sect is the distinction between day and night charts And the basic premise of sect as far as astrology or or ancient astrology is concerned is that the quality of the planets is expressed differently depending on if the person was born originally during the day or if they were born at night. So it's a really crucial interpretive principle, but it's only in the past 20 years or so that it's been recovered in Western astrology because it was lost at some point during the course of the tradition um i actually personally believe that part of the reason it was lost is that some of the lesser sect related rejoicing conditions that had to do with whether the planets above or below the horizon or in a masculine or feminine sign that some of those sort of minor conditions were elevated in the later traditions and that led them to not apply sect properly because the proper application of sect originally was just primarily is it a day chart or a night chart, and then using that to make a a sort of blanket or overall statement about the quality of the planets. And what happened is some of the additional conditions that were minor things were elevated in importance later on, and I think that that threw off the effectiveness of the technique because they started emphasizing things that were not really all that important. So whatever you've learned about sect previously, just forget it for the purpose of this lecture because all we're focusing on is just is it a day chart or is it a night chart and does the planet prefer to be in a day chart or does it prefer to be in a night chart in terms of the quality of its significations so we'll get to that in just a minute so the primary thing that sect does is it actually alters the expression of the benefics and malefics in a significant way and it can make the benefics act in a way that's either more benefic, so that they express their benefic significations more readily, or it can do the opposite, and it can cause the malefics to be more inhibited and to withhold their benefic significations so that they are much more moderate in their expression. Similarly with the malefics, sect can cause or can um, result, let's say, in the malefics either expressing their significations in a way that's extremely negative so that you get the far end of the malefic spectrum in terms of the worst worst case scenarios in terms of the manifestations of the significations of those planets or sect can cause the planets to moderate their significations the malefics to moderate their significations so that they're not as malefic as they could be otherwise but instead the malefics become constructive so as a result of that, sect is a really crucial interpretive principle for determining if the benefics are actually going to be fully benefic, and if the malefics are going to be fully malefic, or if they'll be somewhere in between. And that's why it's a crucial principle that's been missing from a large part of the discussion that was happening in the 1970s and 80s where contemporary astrologers rejected the concept of benefics and malefics because they said you know, clearly sometimes Saturn behaves negatively, but in other instances, it's clearly quite constructive. And so they said, therefore, the concept of benefic and malefic or that distinction is no longer useful or relevant. What was missing from that discussion is the concept of sect, because you can actually see in many instances that the way in which the benefic or malefic manifests its significations is partially due to its sect status in the chart. So it's not this it's not this wild card factor that just has to do with like the consciousness or the level of spiritual evolution or introspective of the native introspectiveness of the native it's actually a technical consideration that astrologers didn't know about and had lost and were overlooking and that was the crucial piece of that discussion that had been missing so i've had many discussions about sect on the podcast um one of the earliest discussions was one i had with robert hand on episode 37. So you can go and listen to that if you'd like. There's also a tag for sect. If you go to the astrologypodcast.com/slash tag slash sect, um, you'll see several other podcasts where I talked about sect or where sect played a major component or a major role in the discussion that we were having. So I'd recommend going through those if you want to learn more about this concept, uh, at least as far as the podcast is concerned. So sect is really easy to determine. Basically, the quick and easy rule is just that if the Sun is in the top half of the chart above the exact degrees of the Ascendant-Descendant Axis, then it's a day chart. Whereas if the Sun is anywhere below in the bottom half of the chart, below the Ascendant-Descendant Axis, then it's a night chart. So, there's some Additional details and nuances surrounding that if the sun is really close to the ascendant or descendant, which means it's very close to rising or setting. We don't need to get into that here. The general principle, though, is just if it's in the top half of the chart, it's a day chart. If it's in the bottom half of the chart, it's a night chart. And the reason that that's useful or the immediate way to apply that as a concept is it helps you to identify what, according to sect, will be the most positive planet in the chart. And the most negative planet in the chart. So, generally speaking, the rule is this: um, all other factors aside, uh, the most positive planet in a day chart is going to be Jupiter, and the most positive planet in a night chart is going to be Venus. Whereas conversely, the most negative planet in a day chart is going to be Mars, and the most positive pla- or the most negative planet in a night chart is going to be Saturn. So That is a quick and easy rule. It sounds almost too simple, but it's actually surprisingly useful in practice. So I would recommend memorizing uh, these assignments because you'll find that it it creates a quick and easy way for you to identify the planet that's going to help out and act as a positive influence in a person's chart and the planet that's going to be or cause or correlate with some of the greatest problems or or difficulties or obstacles in the person's life. And that can be very useful when you're first looking at a chart, whether it's your chart or a client's chart or what have you, if you're able to quickly identify um, the planets that are helping and the planets that are causing problems. All right, so let's return back then to our first example chart where we see... Again, we add an additional modifying principle, and one of the things that we notice in Lisa Marie Presley's chart is that she has the sun, you can see over on the far right, just a few degrees above the degree of the descendant. So as a result of that, she was basically born just before sunset, so therefore it was still a day chart. So because it was still a day chart, that means according to our previous diagram, that Jupiter should be the most positive planet in her chart and that Jupiter, of course, is placed in the second house. So again, it's an additional modifying principle because what we see is that she wasn't just in a second house perfection year, she wasn't just in a perfection year where Jupiter was in the second house, but she was also born with a day chart and therefore Jupiter was the most positive planet in her chart. So again, there's an additional modifying factor that when you take into account can help you to understand further why that placement and its activation would have been particularly good for her compared to, let's say, if she had been born like an hour later after sunset, then Jupiter would not be the most positive planet in her chart, but instead Venus would. So therefore, that second house perfection year might not have coincided with um, such a huge financial windfall from her. Or, or for her, uh, but instead Jupiter's placement there in the 2nd would have been more muted. Uh, similarly, going back to my previous 7th house example with the native who had Venus and the Sun in the 7th whole sign house, and she went into a 7th house perfection year and met her future husband. So the other part of that is that she was actually born like more than an hour or so after sunset, Since the Descendant is at 25 degrees of Cancer and the Sun is at 5 degrees of Cancer, that means the Sun is already set underneath the horizon in this chart, so she was actually born at night. So as a result of that, since she was born at night, Venus is the most positive planet in her chart. So one of the statements we would make right away, seeing that Venus is the most positive planet in her chart and it's in the 7th house, is that Um, one of the areas of your life that's going to go the smoothest or in which you're going to have some of the greatest, the most positive things happen to you, all other factors aside, um, is the sphere of relationships and marriage. And in point of fact, when that placement was activated, when she turned 18 years old, she began the most important relationship and positive relationship of her life uh, to the person that she would eventually get married to. Now, you can contrast that with this is another native who uh, has the Sun and Mars in the 7th whole sign house in a day chart. So the Sun is at 10 degrees of Scorpio and the descendants at around 3 degrees of Scorpio, which means that the person was born just before sunset. So they're born just before sunset, therefore it's a day chart, and Mars therefore is the most difficult planet in the chart and it's also in the 7th house. So compared to the previous chart where the most positive planets in the 7th house, therefore we say that some of the most positive events in your life will probably occur in the sphere of relationships, for this native having the most difficult or negative planet in the sphere of relationships indicates that some of the most difficult events in her life would take place with respect to relationships and marriage. And what happened is that when she turned 30 years old, she moved into a 7th house perfection year. That placement was activated of Mars in the seventh house, and her husband uh, died a month later or a month after she turned thirty years old so I use that example as a contrast here when we're talking about the most positive and negative planets that sometimes for this person, for example this was a one time event in her life in terms of this is the most this is the worst year of her life in terms of. Negative events in the context of relationships, but it was clearly timed in terms of the annual perfections. So sometimes identifying the most positive and negative planets is important because it can help you to identify those specific years in the life in which some of the most positive or most negative events might occur that are are characteristic or that stand out in terms of the native's life as a whole. All right. Another example. So this is the birth chart of Charlie Sheen, who, who is a famous actor. So he turned forty five years. He was forty five years old, starting in September of two thousand ten, and he moved into a tenth house perfection year. So his tenth whole sign house is Pisces, the tenth sign from the rising sign, and he has uh, Saturn there, but it's in a night chart. So his sun is down in the fourth house in the bottom half of the chart. So we know it's a night chart he has Saturn in the 10th. So that's going to be one of the more difficult areas or difficult placements for him. And in that year, it got activated. So what ended up happening is that starting in 2011, basically, early 2011, he kind of freaked out a little bit and he destroyed his career. Um, He got himself fired from the sitcom that he was the leading actor on. And on that show, he was actually the highest paid actor on television at the time. But because of his behavior, he ended up getting himself fired. Um, and then also in this year, he may have learned as a result of some sort of like drug binges and other stuff he was going through at the time, he learned that he may have learned or seems to have learned that he was HIV positive. So, one of the things I'm pointing out with this example is that dual sort of indication that I was talking about with the first house. Um, at the beginning of this lecture, since we're we're perfecting from the Ascendant or from the First House, uh, sometimes what we're talking about is things that pertain to the body, and other times we're talking about things that pertain to the person's character and their actions. So um, sometimes it can kind of go either way, or sometimes it can apply to both. And Arlene asks, can you do perfection years from progressed charts as well? Or is it only applicable to natal charts? Um, I've never seen that done. So this is really, as far as I know, just a technique that's applied to natal charts primarily. Um, I have seen some people apply it to event charts or like electional charts for businesses or, or marriages or corporations or things like that, but that's still more like a natal chart or, or perfecting from a fixed natal chart. And Arthur's asking if you can perfect from houses other than the first, and the the short answer to that is yes. Uh, and I'll come back to that question later at the at the end of this lecture. All right. So, um, does anyone have any questions up to, any other questions up to this point in terms of where we're at so far in terms of just perf- the perfection coming to a house and that activating planets that are located in that house, especially if they're benefics or malefics? No. Okay. Pretty straightforward stuff so far. All right, so the next additional modification of the technique that we're going to introduce is one that I've already mentioned in passing. But basically, when the perfection comes to a specific sign or a specific house, of course using whole sign houses, the the houses and the signs are one and the same, they coincide exactly on top of each other. Um, But when the perfection comes to a sign slash house, the ruler of that house also becomes activated, and that planet is the one that's known as the lord of the year or the planetary ruler of the year or otherwise basically just the time lord for the year. It's the planet that rules the house that has become activated. So what I mean by that is that if the perfection comes to the 7th house and let's say Gemini is on the cusp of the 7th house, then Mercury, the ruler of Gemini, becomes activated as the time lord for the year because it's the ruler of the 7th house and it's the ruler of Gemini. Or if the perfection comes to the 10th house and Aries is on the cusp of the 10th house, then Mars will become activated as the lord of the year. So according to this, this technique, even though when when uh, the perfection comes to a sign, it will activate planets that are in that sign it's really the planet that rules the sign that is the primary time lord for the year. And that's the one that you end up paying the most attention to ultimately in the end most of the time is the planet that rules the sign that the perfection has come to. So what you need to focus on then once you've figured out what planet is the lord of the year is what is the condition of that planet in the natal chart? Because again, the basic premise of this technique is that what's going to manifest at that time is simply whatever was promised in the birth chart based on the, the condition and the placement of that planet. So basically, you want to ask yourself questions like Is the ruler of that house in a good condition or is it in a bad condition natally? Is it, let's say, afflicted or is it the opposite of afflicted, which is to be bona fide? Is that planet closely aspected by? benefics or is it closely aspected by malefics? There's a bunch of different considerations like that for determining planetary condition in ancient astrology that become hugely important at this point. Because again, if the planet is just going to manifest whatever it indicated in the natal chart, then you want to be able to find out exactly what that planet was promising in the natal chart based on its condition. Uh, But you can't do that unless you understand the basics of Basically, what indicates a well-positioned planet in a chart versus what posi- what indicates a not well-positioned or or a poorly positioned planet in a birth chart. So that's obviously something that's a little bit beyond the scope of this lecture. Um, I do the the full treatment of that is something that I deal with in the middle of my Hellenistic course, where I have a long lecture that deals with the original seven conditions of what's called bonification and maltreatment. Um, So you can find out more information about that on the course site. So Karina asks, are you familiar with Abu Mashar's special treatment of the sun and moon as lords of the year? He seems to not use the sun or moon as the lords of the year, but uses substitutes based on a confusing set of rules. Uh, I don't think I I was familiar with that, but I don't. That's not the approach that I follow just because um, I have lots of example charts where A person comes to like a Cancer perfection year and the Moon is clearly activated as the lord of the year, or a person comes to a Leo perfection year and the Sun is clearly activated as the lord of the year and its condition in the chart ends up indicating what types of events occur in the life at that point. So I feel pretty safe using the luminaries as planetary rulers. Sure, yeah, that would be great if you could send me that. Okay, um and I might be overlooking other questions if people aren't putting them in the chat box. Okay, yeah, I see now there's so there's also a Q&A. Um uh Marsha asks, what if a benefic planet and a malefic planet are conjunct in the natal chart in the house activated? Then it typically means that you'll get both um especially if it's the most positive planet and the most negative planet, you'll tend to have a year in which there's both extremes in which some of the the best events happen and some of the worst events happen. So that's like the you know, the year where you attend a wedding and a funeral type situation. Uh there are instances where sometimes one of the planets will have more power or will win out over the other, so that either the benefic or the malefic will will outshine and will overpower the other planet, depending on their condition and how they're situated in that sign. Um, but again, then it, it just really comes back to the conditions of the planets and how they're situated. Uh, and somebody asked, Catherine asked about the URL of the second PDF. So the URL for that was just hellenisticastrology.com slash perfections dash worksheet dot PDF. Let me see if I can put it in the chat. There we go. So it should be in the chat box now. All right, so we are back to the Lord of the Year. So the condition of the Lord of the Year oftentimes will indicate the outcome of the year or what the ultimate outcome of the year will be. So going back to I think what my second or one of my early example charts of Robert Kennedy, where we saw that he turned 38 years old, he moved into a third house perfection year, with the third house being associated with siblings, and then two days later, his brother was assassinated or was famously killed. Um, part of the reason why he experienced a negative outcome in that third house perfection year rather than a positive outcome is was the condition of the lord of the year. So if you look at um, the sign in the house that's activated, we see that Cancer is activated. There's no actual planets in the third house. He does have the north node there, and he has a lot of fortune there, but otherwise there's no planets there. So then we look to The ruler of that sign. And the ruler of Cancer is, of course, the Moon. The Moon in this chart is placed in Capricorn at 28 degrees of Capricorn conjunct the south node. Um, It is in the same sign as, and it's separating from a conjunction with Venus and Jupiter, which is quite positive. But the problem is that if you look at the very next aspect that the Moon makes, Uh, the Moon at 28 degrees of Capricorn is actually applying to an out-of-sign square within just a few degrees to Mars, which is at uh, 4 degrees of Scorpio in the seventh whole sign house in a day chart. So because it's a day chart, Mars is the most difficult planet in the chart, and the Moon as the ruler of the third house of siblings is applying directly to a challenging aspect, a square with that malefic planet. So what happened is that when the Moon was activated as the Lord of the Year um, in that third house perfection year, in one of the years of this native's life, he famously uh, and tragically lost a sibling under very Martian-type circumstances where, where he was shot, basically. So Yeah, there's other things we can take into account. Patricia, for example, points out that the Moon is also in detriment. That's relevant as well. Um, There's a few other relevant pieces. It's not like this is the only thing or, or that I'm even giving all of the different pieces or variables or that there aren't other techniques that would show overlapping important indications at that point in time. But the point here is just showing that sometimes perfections can vary quickly in a very straightforward and sort of black and white fashion can really identify some of the most important placements and some of the most important themes in a given year. So Matthew says, Do you regularly use out of sign squares in Hellenistic astrology? Um, in some instances, especially if it's very close, like within 3 degrees, although for planets like the Moon where even from a Hellenistic perspective, the the range of application or the orb for the Moon was much wider, where they paid attention to 12 and 13 degrees applying aspects for the Moon. Um, If there's an aspect that's going to complete within 12 to 13 degrees, I'll definitely pay attention to that for the Moon even if it's out of sign. Because in this instance, that actually ends up being a condition of maltreatment. So in in my lecture on the seven conditions of bonification and maltreatment that come from the 1st century astrologer Antiochus of Athens, one of the conditions is applying to an exact square or opposition with a benefic or malefic uh, within the range of orb of that planet, which for the Moon is 13 degrees. So the Moon is actually the most poorly positioned planet in this chart because it's being maltreated by Mars or it's being afflicted is the later term for maltreatment. All right, so let's keep moving. Um, My other example of the lord of the year and why it's so important to pay attention to the condition of the ruler of the year um, is the the rapper uh, Dr. Dre, who we actually have a birth chart for. Um, He made an estimated $620 million in 2014 when the company that he co-founded, which was Beats Electronics, which is like the headphone company, got really popular a few years ago was sold to Apple computers. And Dr. Dre himself made $620 million in just that year from the sale of that company. So according to reports at the time, this was actually more than any musician had ever made in a single year. And this happened in 2014. He turned 49 years old that year in 2014, earlier that year. And thus, at forty-nine years old, is actually a second house perfection year. So, in his chart, and this is a exactly timed chart from the birth certificate, he has Gemini rising, and Cancer is the second whole sign house. So, the ruler of Cancer is the Moon, which is at seven degrees of Libra in this chart, and it's actually applying to a trine within thirteen degrees. So, the orb that I'm using for the Moon, thirteen degrees again. Uh, it's applying within 13 degrees to a trine with Venus. Uh, and that trine with Venus is made more positive because there's also reception, because the moon is in Libra, which is one of the signs that Venus rules. So what we have is the ruler of the second is actually very well placed in the chart because it's um it's in the fifth whole sign house, which is one of the most positive houses. It's applying to a benefic it's applying to a benefic by a trine, which is the most positive aspect of all the possible aspects. And there's also reception uh, because the Moon is in Venus's sign, which therefore creates a closer affinity between the Moon and Venus. So there's the potential there for very positive financial indications because the ruler of the second is so well-placed. But it was in the year in which he moved into that second house perfection year that he made what presumably will be the most money in a single year in his lifetime. Okay, some people are asking questions. I don't understand. what What is your question, Annie Frank? You, you just said, what about Mars? But I'm not sure what the context of that question is. Um. And Karina says, if the Moon were squaring Venus, would it still be fide? Um yeah, it wouldn't be as positive, but if it's a square, especially with reception, then it's still a benefic applying to, or it's still a planet or a significator applying to a benefic. Um, it would not be necessarily as positive though. The moon is in conjunction. I mean it's it's an out-of-sign, you're saying why what about the moon being in conjunction with Mars? It's it's an out of sign separating conjunction, so that wouldn't necessarily be relevant here as a Uh, condition of maltreatment. Maltreatment only occurs through um, applying aspects, but not necessarily separating ones. Okay, so let's move on. Um, The other chart that I wanted to use to demonstrate the distinctions between the Lord of the Year is the birth chart of Vanessa Williams, who was a famous uh, model and singer and actress. So she actually became the first Uh, Black Miss America in September of 1983 when she was 20 years old. So, 20 years old is a ninth house perfection year. So, Pisces, her ninth whole sign house was activated, and Pisces contains her natal Mercury, her natal Jupiter, and her natal Sun, as well as the degree of the midheaven. So, the the MC here is actually the quadrant midheaven. And because it doesn't fall in the 10th whole sign house, it's actually falling in the ninth whole sign house. It's importing 10th house significations over into the ninth house so that you get an overlap of both ninth house significations as well as 10th house career significations in the same whole sign house. So she basically won the Miss America pageant and became the first, she she became very notable as the first black Miss America in that year of her life. And this is a day chart with Jupiter in Pisces in its own sign in the ninth whole sign house. So, it's basically the most positive planet in her chart uh, being activated in that year, and it was definitely one of the most notable and one of the most positive years of her life. But then what's interesting is the very next year, the perfection switched over and moved forward one sign and activated Aries, which is her 10th whole sign house. And what ended up happening is when she switched into that 10th house perfection year, uh, when she turned 21 years old there was some like like scum, some scummy the the story's kind of complicated but they basically there was some scummy magazine that said that they were going to publish like nude pictures of her that she had taken when she was in college and as a result of the publication of those photos she was forced to give the crown back and resign as miss america and it ended up being a, a tremendously embarrassing and difficult um year of her life where basically she went from like being on top of the world to suddenly you know seeming like her career was completely destroyed over this this scandal, so um it switched to the tenth house, activating Aries, and there's no planets in the tenth house, which means that it's just Mars, the ruler of the tenth house, which becomes activated. and again, because she has a day chart, that means Mars is the most difficult planet in her chart. So that creates an interesting contrast where you go from Pisces where it's activating Jupiter as the traditional ruler of Pisces in a day chart as the most positive planet in the chart to switching to Aries, activating Mars as the Lord of the Year, and suddenly the most difficult planet in the chart is is being activated. So there's some different things that we could go into in terms of Mars's condition and, and other factors like that. But I just wanted to, to show the contrast sometimes when you switch from one Lord of the Year to the other, and how that oftentimes has a lot to do with the planetary condition. So it's not always gonna be that that stark, because it you know, not everybody has like a super well-placed planet like she has with Jupiter in a day chart in Pisces, conjunct the MC, completely unafflicted and unaspected by Mars and Saturn. And not everybody has like a really super poorly placed malefic either. So the contrast isn't always that stark, but sometimes when you run into a chart where it is, you can notice in some perfection years a very stark um distinction between one perfection year and the next. Um, Linda asked, what if the ruler of the year is retrograde in the Natal chart? Retrogrades sometimes traditionally in the Hellenistic tradition were interpreted as delays. So sometimes it can just indicate a delay in the manifestation of the significations of the planet until later in the year. All right, so there's a bunch of conditions that traditionally it's like these are all the conditions in the Hellenistic core in my Hellenistic course, we build up to and we go we go through a bunch of different steps that you learn initially just in terms of understanding what the condition of a planet is in the natal chart, and so this is just like a quick list of some of the things that you might want to ask yourself or try to take into account. As you're trying to determine the the condition of the Lord of the Year, so things like you know is the planet a benefic or a malefic? Is the the benefic or malefic? Is it um, in a chart that matches its preferred sect status, or is it in a chart that's the opposite to its preferred sect status? What is the zodiacal dignity of the planet? Is it is it in its own sign or exaltation, or conversely, is it in the sign of its depression? Uh, the sign of its fall or the sign of its detriment. Um, Additionally, you want to pay attention to things like mutual receptions, like if the planet is not in its own sign, but if it's exchanging signs with another planet, that can actually be an important mitigating factor that can give it a type of zodiacal strength or dignity that it might not have otherwise. Um, Other factors that you want to take into account are things like, is it located in a good house or in one of the bad houses? Like good houses are ones like the fifth or the eleventh or the tenth, whereas the challenging or the bad the quote unquote bad houses are houses like the sixth house or the twelfth house. um, I think I actually have a diagram on that, yeah, here's a little diagram, so traditionally, the good houses are the houses that aspect the ascendant through one of the major aspects, so that would be like the third house, the fourth house, the fifth, seventh, ninth, tenth, or eleventh those are generally going to tend to be experienced as more positive compared to the houses that do not aspect the first house according to a major aspect, which are the second, sixth, eighth, and twelfth. Um, Other conditions, is the planet bona fide or maltreated? That's a whole separate discussion in and of itself. And then finally, are there any mitigating conditions? So a positive mitigating condition is if you have aspects from benefics. So let's say you have a poorly placed planet But it has very tight applying aspects from benefics, that's going to help to counteract any negative indications of that planet to balance out a little bit. Conversely, another mitigating factor that's very important is if you have a planet that's being afflicted, especially from a close aspect with the malefic, if there's reception with the malefic, then it will help to mitigate that challenging aspect. So I think we'll actually come back to that concept a little bit later um when i talk about mitigations for just a second yeah that's another question that'll come up till uh, come up later okay well and, and here's the actual slide so so mitigating conditions um you've got to pay attention to mitigating conditions because this is one of the things i think that people it, it it initially puts people off of studying traditional or older forms of astrology because there's a lot of things that are stated in in extreme Terms like in terms of like worst case or best case scenario, and there's a lot of things that are that sound very black and white, like it's either positive or negative. But the thing that people often overlook is the importance of mitigating conditions because it's the mitigating conditions where you get many of the shades of gray in between, and you get planets that are are moderated or counteracted for better or worse. And that that plays a very important role in terms of specifying the conditions by which something can either be pushed towards the extreme, for better or worse, or can be made uh, somewhere in the middle, somewhere more moderate. So for example, as I said, afflicted planets can be made better if they're bona fide or they're being counteracted by benefics. So if you have a really poorly placed planet that may not actually be the worst case scenario or you may not experience the worst case scenario if there's benefics that are lending a hand to counteract that placement conversely if you have a really well placed planet it still might not be the best possible scenario if that planet is being made worse by being afflicted by malefics so uh, there's a bunch of different considerations that you can take into account reception and planets having zodiacal strength, otherwise known as dignity, by being in their own signs and in their domiciles or in the signs of their exaltation are major mitigating factors, um, especially for planets that are otherwise afflicted by, mal- by malefics. So this isn't the lecture to get into like a full treatment of benefics and malefics. And luckily, if this is a concept that's new to you, I had a- an amazing discussion on episode 28 with an astrologer named Michael Ofek. Where we talked about a ton of different mitigating conditions for uh, planets according to traditional astrology. So just go to the Astrology Podcast website and find episode 28 to learn more about that concept, and there's a pretty thorough discussion there already. All right, so before we move on to the next interpretive principle, does anyone have any questions um, before we move on? No? Okay, good. All right, so I don't know if this is the last. This is one of the last interpretive principles that I wanted to interpret. I wanted to introduce for the purpose of this lecture, which is just so we've already introduced the idea that you want to pay attention to the condition of the planet that has become the lord of the year. Uh, one other factor that you really want to pay pay attention to, and that's really going to come into play in terms of the interpretation of the themes that are going to come up in that year, is the significations of the house that the lord of the year is located in. So if you go into uh, a perfection year and let's say Mercury is activated, you want to pay attention to what house Mercury is located in because the significations of those ha- that house uh, is often going to come into play. So if the lord of the year is in the, the seventh house, then relationships will potentially become part of the the narrative surrounding the story of the native's life in that year. Or if the Lord of the Year is in the 10th house, then career matters could become relevant. Or if it's in the 11th house, then friends could become relevant. So this is tied up in the broader context of um, interpreting the rulers of the houses and what happens when the ruler of one house is in another house and how that planet can import significations from the house it rules into the house that it's placed in. So for example, if one of the delineations or one of the situations you might find is if the ruler of the 7th house of marriage is located in the 11th house of friendship, then it may indicate a situation where at some point the native has, let's say, a relationship with a friend or a friendship becomes a closer or more intimate relationship. Um, With perfections, the year in which that planet is activated uh the the ruler of the seventh house in the 11th house it's also going to be activating that dynamic and that connection between the seventh house and the 11th house itself so this is something i go into in more detail in a, a separate lecture that i have on i think it's called like interpreting the rulers of the houses and timing their activation and then it's of course something i spend a lot of time going through and i have an entire lecture on in the hellenistic course But for the purpose of this part of the lecture, all you need to understand is just that when a planet rules a house, it imports the significations of that house into whatever house it falls. So back to Lisa Marie Presley's chart. So again, uh, we keep focusing on this second house perfection year. Jupiter was activated in a day chart in the second house. But if you pay attention to the ruler of the year, and this is a Virgo perfection year, so her second house is Virgo, then you know that Mercury, the ruler of Virgo, is also activated in that year, and we want to pay attention to what house it falls in. Um, Mercury is actually in Pisces in her chart, which is the 8th whole sign house, which traditionally is the house that has to do with uh, death and inheritance and other people's money. So this is one of the final additional factors. It's not the only additional one, but this is one of the final additional crucial factors that really helped to characterize what happened in that specific year and why her second house perfection year when she turned 25 involved her inheriting $100 million from her deceased father. It was because she had a super positive benefic in the second whole sign house in the place of finances and the lord of the year the ruler of the second house was mercury which was placed in the 8th house of death and inheritance and so the manifestation of the activation of those placements ended up being very literal in that year in that she inherited her father's estate at that time so another example this is uh the birth chart of Steve Wozniak who founded apple computers with Steve Jobs in 1976 so part of it is that at that time, he was 25 years old. So he was 25 years old, and 25 years old is a second house perfectioneer. So it's similar to the previous chart where you know, Lisa, Lisa Marie Presley was in a second house perfectioneer, and the ruler of the second house was in the eighth house, and therefore she inherited a bunch of money from her father. This is somebody else who turned 25 years old and his second, he moved into a second house perfectioner. His second house is Libra, which is ruled by Venus, and Venus is actually placed in Cancer, in the eleventh whole sign house, which is the place of friends. So he has a basic setup in his chart where the ruler of the second house of finances is located in the eleventh house of friendship. Venus is also incredibly well placed because it has a superior sign based trine from Jupiter, which is in Pisces. Which is actually a condition of bonification, according to the Hellenistic tradition, um and Venus is otherwise not afflicted by either of the malefics uh it's also conjunct its domicile lord, which is the ruler the ruler of the eleventh house, which is the moon. so what happened is that he founded this company with his friend, who was Steve Jobs, and as a result of this uh partnership, basically this financial partnership with his friend. Um, Steve Wozniak, the native, became incredibly rich as a result of it. So the most general delineation you could you could sort of put together for that, for the ruler of the second house and the 11th house is that somehow your finances are going to be tied up with your friendships. Uh, because it was well-placed, that was actually in a positive sense in this instance. So there could be other instances, and I've seen other instances where it's more in a negative sense where the person, if, if it's afflicted or something, could lose money as a result of their friends. But in his case, because the ruler of the second is actually well positioned, it was that positive things will happen to you financially as a result of your friendship. And in the year, the second house perfection year in which that was activated, that was the start of that um, sort of full fledged financial partnership. And let's see, one more. So this is the birth chart of Ted Kennedy, who is actually the other younger brother of John F. Kennedy. So Ted Kennedy was 31 years old when JFK was killed, and 31 is an 8th house perfection year. So his 8th whole sign house is Leo, and the ruler of Leo is the Sun, which in his chart is located in Pisces in the 3rd whole sign house. So he has the ruler of the 8th house of death in the 3rd house of siblings, and in the year in which the perfections came to the 8th house of death and activated the ruler of the 8th house in his 3rd house of siblings, he tragically lost a sibling, which is pretty straightforward. Uh, let's see a more positive example. So this is somebody who uh, turned 32 years old and moved into a ninth. House perfection year. So it activated Taurus, and the ruler of Taurus is Venus, which is located in the fourth house of the home and living situation. So the ruler of the ninth house of travel and foreign places was located in the fourth house of the home and living situation. And what happened is that when he turned 32 years old and went into this ninth house perfection year, he basically moved to relocate permanently. To a foreign country. So, moving to live abroad in a foreign country was the indication of having the ruler of the ninth and the fourth, and then it was activated in the year that he went into a ninth house perfection year. All right, so there's just a few other interpretive principles. I think there's two more left here before we start wrapping up. One of them is 12 year repetition. So, one of the things that's obvious here that's pretty straightforward as soon as you learn the technique, one of the things you realize is that because there's only 12 signs and you're counting one sign per year from the year the native was born, that means the cycle's going to repeat every 12 years. So one of the things that happens, this is actually very useful to know this and to pay attention to this because one of the things that happens is you actually will see sometimes similar themes that echo through the native's life when the same houses are activated. So that's especially the case if it's a particularly important house in the native's chart or it's a house that stands out in some way um, due to planets being in that house or due to the ruler of the house being very prominent or taking a prominent role in the native's chart for some reason. So every 12 years, you're going to have the same perfections repeat. But what changes is two things. One There's other general Time Lord techniques like zodiac releasing, which actually uh, will change and will set the tone for entire decades of your life. So annual perfections is a Time Lord technique that changes from year to year, but zodiac releasing is a technique that sometimes will activate certain parts of the chart or certain signs for upwards of, of 20 or 30 years. So here on the video is Some Zodiac-releasing periods where it assigns years to each of the signs. So Capricorn, for example, is 27 years, Aquarius is 30 years, Uh, Cancer is 25 years, Leo is 19, Virgo is 20. And this is a separate Time Lord technique where it activates certain parts of the chart for, for decades of a person's life. And typically, you're supposed to use a technique like this first because it can be used to divide the the person's entire life, or or let's say, the first hundred years of the person's life, into just a few separate chapters, so that you can get kind of a bird's eye view of the entire life. And then what you do is you use techniques like perfections in order to zoom in on, or in order to narrow down specific years of the person's life. But the zodiac releasing periods set the general tone, and then you use the annual perfections to specify the the particulars. In a given year. So that's one thing that changes is the other general time lord periods like zodiac releasing. The other major thing that changes is the transits from one cycle to another. So, you know, in one let let's say one perfection year, you might be going through a 10th uh, house perfection year where the focus is career, and you might have, let's say, Jupiter transiting through the 10th house at the same time. So maybe you experience something that very positive in that tenth house perfection year related to your career, but in another perfection year, let's say twelve or twenty-four years later, when you again have the tenth house activated, you might have you know a Mars Saturn conjunction by transit that that goes exact in your tenth house in that year, and in that year you might experience more challenges or difficulties or setbacks within the context of the tenth house because the transits at the time are emphasizing challenging significations and circumstances rather than more positive ones. So, the transits have the power typically to intensify or sometimes even to counteract certain indications that are in the birth chart. But typically, you'll still see a broad repetition of similar themes and similar circumstances based on the perfection years, but it can be altered and offset basically based on the transits. And that's transits through the sign that's become activated as well as transits to the lord of the year. And I think that's one of the last things that we'll touch on here in just a second. I have one example of the repetitions. It's not a great example because it's not um, a time chart for sure, but this is the birth chart of Hillary Clinton. So there's still great controversy, and one of the episodes I did a year or two ago was talking about the controversy surrounding her birth time um, this example still kind of works even despite that because what we what we noticed and we what we know is that every time she goes into a tenth house perfection year and she's always going to go into a tenth house perfection year during certain years, basically regardless of what her birth time is, um, she often becomes very prominent but also runs into major obstacles or sometimes setbacks or difficulties. So for example, when she turned twenty one she was chosen to speak at her her college graduation. She was chosen to, to speak on behalf of the students, which, which was a very prestigious um, thing that happened to her at that point in her life when she went into one of her earliest 10th house perfection years. But she ended up giving kind of a controversial speech and she received a lot of publicity for it, but also uh, a bit of blowback as well because she gave kind of a controversial speech according to some people. So fast forward then to, I believe, her next 10th house perfection year 12 years later, what happened is that she was already uh, married to Bill Clinton, and he had previously become governor of Arkansas, but then he was up for re-election and he lost. And a large part of the reason that he lost was put at her feet because they said that she didn't do some of the typical things that she was supposed to do as like a governor's wife or something like that. And so the loss of the governorship for him was taken very personally for her as a as like a personal setback that she had partially been responsible for. And as a result of that, she decided to completely make over her image at that point in time in order to do whatever it took to allow the two of them to be uh politically successful in the future. So, fast forward to 12 years later, what happened is that she had her birthday just before the 1992 presidential election, and she again moved into a 10th house perfection year. And a few weeks later, her husband won the election and became president in, 19- in November of 1992. So, on the one hand, they moved into the White House at that point, and she became, uh, again, an, an extremely prominent period in her life where she became First Lady of the United States, which is a really prominent position. But then they assigned her a role to pursue universal health care basically starting early the following year. So she started trying to um, promote and sort of pursue an agenda to establish universal health care in the United States. And she experienced extreme blowback and extreme pushback in that process. And in the process, kind of got a little bit vilified. Um, so it ended up being an extremely difficult year subsequently for her personally and politically as a result of some of the opposition that she ran into at the time as a result of her her efforts there. So that was 1992. And then finally, she did another 12th house perfection year that we'll, we'll skip over in the mid-2000s. And finally, she went into another 10th house perfection year starting on her birthday in October of 2016, and then a few weeks later, uh, like one or two weeks later, uh, she lost the presidential election in November of 2016 to Donald Trump, thus beginning the the following perfection year where, yeah, she had to you know figure out what to do after losing the presidential election. So one of the issues, of course, one of the reasons I always gravitated towards the Scorpio rising birth time, which is the 8 a.m. birth time for her, is that it puts that Mars, Pluto, Saturn conjunction in her 10th whole sign house, which would mean it which would mean that it's that conjunction that's getting activated every time she moves into these 10th house perfection years, which of course would make a little bit of sense based on what we're seeing, where there are periods of extreme prominence, but also of extreme difficulty and hardship and loss in some instances. Uh, But you know, we don't know because there's other birth times floating around. There's one person who's talking about the 8 p.m. time working as well. And there may be some way in which that's relevant. I don't really know. And I'm not sure if we're ever going to find out unless the birth certificate is released at some point in the future. But regardless, even without the birth time, we know that it's always in these 10th house perfection years that the same scenarios or the same situations keep happening and you can see the similar repetitions in her life. So of course, there's variations at different points based on the transits, and sometimes it's intensifying the negative placements, and other times it's easing them and making them not so bad so that the prominent things win out over the negative things. But you can still see a sort of similar repetition that goes throughout the person's life. And honestly, that's the primary that's one of the keys to using annual perfections as a predictive technique is through um, going through the person's past history and figuring out what the repetitions have been in 12-year increments whenever certain houses are activated. So if you're working with a client or if you're looking at your own chart and you have a certain perfection year coming up, like let's say a 10th house perfection year, the best one of the best things that you can do aside from just trying to assess the planetary condition and what houses it rules and all that other stuff is literally just go back in your chronology and see uh what happened in 12-year increments the last time that house was activated and if you can identify any similar or any recurring themes that have happened during those times Because if you can, and if there is a strong theme that comes forward, then oftentimes you can use that in order to infer some of the themes that are likely to become prominent in the following year when that perfection is activated again. So it sounds pretty simple, but it's actually a pretty straightforward and pretty useful technique for, again, trying to predict and anticipate the future. So Lisa Scheim actually has a whole lecture on this topic that's on on her website, lisasheim.com, which is titled Repeating Years, Repeating Themes, where she has largely a bunch of client charts and then a few celebrity charts where she goes through and shows different repetitions of different perfection years in different people's lives and how sometimes there were similar repetitions and other times there were differences based on transits and how you can use that and incorporate it into your approach to perfection's To enhance the ability of the technique to make predictions, so I definitely recommend checking that out. All right, and I believe this is the very last thing, and it's again going back to the concept of transits because one of the keys and one of the one of the reasons that this technique is the most useful, the technique for finding the Lord of the Year, is that the planet that becomes the Lord of the Year is actually activated both in its natal position. As we've gone over up to this point in the lecture, but also in its transits. So that's a really crucial statement that whatever planet is activated according to annual perfections as the Lord of the year is also going to be activated in its transits. So, what I mean by that is there's three different things that you then have to pay attention to once you understand that that's the case. Um, The transits that become more important are one, the transits to the Lord of the year in the birth chart. And what I mean by that is if Mercury is the Lord of the year in your birth chart according to annual perfections, then that means that you're going to want to pay much closer attention to any transits that Mercury receives in your birth chart during the course of that year. So for example, if you have Saturn transiting over Mercury that year, that's going be that transit is going to be much more important and it's going to stand out much more compared to other years where if you have Saturn transiting over Mercury, but it's not the lord of the year, then that transit might come and go and not be that big of a deal. Whereas if you have that transit in a year in which Mercury is actually activated as a time lord, that's the year in which that's going to play a dominant role in terms of setting up the themes of that year in the person's life. So in this way, using perfections is actually one of the One of the things that it does or one of the reasons it's useful is that it can help you to filter out which transits are going to coincide with an event versus which transits are going to come and go without much significant happening. Uh, It can also help you to rank which transits are more important and which ones you should pay more attention to in a given year versus the ones that might not be as important or that you don't need to pay as much attention to based on which planet is activated as the lord of the year. So, the first one is pay attention to transits to the lord of the year in the natal chart. Uh, The second one is pay attention to transits by the lord of the year to natal planets. So, what I mean by that is if you have Jupiter activated as the lord of the year, then pay closer attention to what transits to your natal chart that transiting Jupiter makes in that year. Or if you have Saturn activated, for example, and you're having a Saturn return then that Saturn transit and any tra- any planets that Saturn transits over in that year are going to be hit and are going to stand out much more strongly than in another year and that also applies to things like retrograde so for example um if you're in a perfection year where mercury is activated as the lord of the year Sometimes um, things like Mercury retrograde periods are actually stand out much more in those years compared to other years because Mercury is the lord of the year in that that specific time frame. So that's usually typically when I'm paying attention to Mercury retrograde periods. That's the reason why some Mercury retrograde periods stand out in our life as being particularly notable or almost like clichély, you know, Mercury retrograde type periods it's typically those years in which Mercury is activated as the lord of the year and then goes retrograde. Uh, And then finally, the third point is pay attention to transits through the perfected sign that year. So if you're in a Scorpio perfection year and Jupiter transits through Scorpio, that transit of Jupiter through Scorpio and any planets that it hits during that time are going to be much more important than they would be otherwise. So the three you pay attention to are transits to the lord of the year, transits by the lord of the year, and transits through the perfected sign for the year. And that will help you to identify which transits are going to be more important that year, but also filter out those transits the transits that are going to be less important in that year. Uh, Patricia asked, Chris, do you use the exaltation ruler in addition to the sign ruler? Uh, no, I only pay attention to the Domicile Lord, when I'm looking at the rulers of the signs. Linda asks, What if there are multiple planets in the perfected house? Then all of them are relevant. You pay attention to all of them. So that becomes really important then when you're dealing with like a the case of a stellium. Those years, when a person has a stellium, those years when the stellium is activated tend to really stand out in the person's life Um, because they have a stellium there, and all of those planets are getting activated when Uh, the perfection comes to that sign. So transits are important. I just have a few examples of that before we start to wrap things up. I'm not sure that I see your question, Teresa. Oh, you're in a 12th house perfection year, but Gemini. If my year right now is in the 12th house, but Gemini, does Mercury come into play or is it just Neptune? Um, I don't understand the question. If you're in a Gemini perfection year, then Mercury is the lord of the years, so you would pay attention to Mercury. Okay. So, here's an example of transits. So this is somebody who turned 39 years old and moved into a fourth house perfection year. So his he has Libra rising and his fourth house is Capricorn. So he moved into a fourth house perfection year. The fourth house is empty natally. There's no planets there. Um, and the fourth house has to do with the home and the living situation, of course. So what happened though is that at one point during the year Um, He has a date chart natally, and Mars, transiting Mars, ingressed into Capricorn on October 26th of that year. And just a few days later, on October 29th, his house caught on fire and burned to the ground along with all of his possessions. Um, He was also injured and he had burns on 20% of his body, but otherwise made it out alive. And the main thing was just that his house basically burned down. So. What this is demonstrating and why I use this example is because he was in the fourth house perfection year, so we know that fourth house matters should be part of the focus of that year. But then the actual event that ended up characterizing that year the most, his house burning down, ended up coinciding exactly with the transit of Mars uh, into his fourth whole sign house. So the transits still act as the triggers sometimes of what will happen in the given year, but the perfections help you to focus in on which transits you need to pay the most attention to and which ones potentially are going to be more important. I've got let me see one more example of that. So this is the birth chart of of George Lucas, who directed Star Wars, and what happened is that he, when he was eighteen years old, he moved into a seventh house perfection year. Mars was activated as the Lord of the Year, and he got in a major car accident. so Mars was activated as the Lord of the Year, and what it did what happened is that Mars transiting Mars came up and conjoined the ruler of his ascendant, so the ruler of the first house it came up and conjoined Venus at eleven degrees of Taurus in his first whole sign house. So what happened basically is that he he was really into driving race cars. And he wanted to grow up when he got out of school to be a race car, like a professional race car driver. But he was driving one day and he got in this horrific car accident where his car flipped a bunch of times after he was driving really fast and it flung him out of the car. And then the car smashed into a tree and like crumpled up like a, like a can so that if he had been in the car, he would have been crushed. And even though he was flung from it, he was still pretty badly injured and ended up in the hospital for a few weeks. So after that point, he decided he didn't want to race cars anymore and he went to college and eventually got into filmmaking and then made Star Wars and the rest is history. But the, the genesis of that, that shift or that change in his life trajectory was this really traumatic event when he was in this terrible car accident. So the point of this example is, is two things actually. One, that you have to pay attention to when a planet's activated as the Lord of the Year, the transits that that planet makes to other natal planets in the chart are going to be more important. But his his case is actually interesting because he had a dual transit where at the same time that transiting Mars was conjoining his natal Venus, transiting Venus was at 25 degrees of Cancer the day of the accident, and that was exactly conjunct the degree of his natal Mars at 23 Cancer in the third whole sign house. So that was actually a counteracting or a counterbalancing transit where even though he had this highly negative transit of transiting Mars to natal Venus, the ruler of the Ascendant, he also had a benefic or a positive transit of transiting Venus to natal Mars. And of course, he was thrown from the car and even though he was badly injured, he survived the accident and went on to live his life. Um, so what we have here is kind of a dual instance of a of a really negative transit and then a somewhat positive offsetting transit at the same time. Uh, yeah, Patricia says that Venus also rules the 6th house. Is that relevant? Yeah, that's relevant. The Venus rules the 6th house of injury, and it's in the 1st house of health in the body. The other thing that's relevant is that Mars itself natally is in the 3rd house, which is the house... Uh, from the medieval tradition forward that had to do with short-distance travel. So, things like driving cars uh, is probably relevant in terms of the, the placement of that planet. All right, so we've are sort of introduced everything that I want to introduce in terms of the basic method of annual perfections. I did want to mention at this point very, very briefly that there is a more advanced method of annual perfections where you can actually perfect from any planet place in a planet, house, or point in the chart, not just from the Ascendant. And what this does is it creates a contextual Time Lord technique in order to allow you to time the activation of different parts of the chart relative to specific topics in the native's life. But of course, since we are now at about two hours in this lecture, that is beyond the scope of this lecture, so I will not be able to get into it today. Um, This is going to be the subject of my workshop at the United Astrology Conference next month, so if you happen to be attending that conference in Chicago and you liked this lecture so far, then you should definitely join us for that workshop at UAC. Um, I also, if you're not attending that conference, deal to some extent with the advanced method of perfections a little bit in my course in Hellenistic astrology, and I'm going to be adding another lecture on that topic uh, later this summer once I get back from UAC so you can check that out for more information. All right, so Karina asked how do eclipses in the sign of the perfection affect the character of the perfection year? The main way that eclipses are relevant is that I've noticed that when a person goes into a Cancer perfection year or a Leo perfection year, that all eclipses that take place that year are much more important than they are in any other year. And those tend to be the years where an eclipse happens in a certain part of the chart. And whatever house or whatever topics are associated with the house that the eclipse falls in tend to become much more prominent, much more quickly than they would otherwise. So it's like there's some years of your life where you you notice an eclipse happens and then an event happens like really close to it, and you clearly see that there's a connection between the two, whereas there's other years where an eclipse will happen in a certain part of your chart and like nothing that significant will happen. The difference is perfections and whether um the luminaries are activated that year uh, as the lords of the year. All right, so concluding remarks, Um, time lord techniques are really crucial for timing because they activate the signatures that are already built into the birth chart. They activate the the latent natal potential of a placement, and you can't really fully know when the latent potential is going to manifest in the person's life unless you know the time lord techniques. So that's why this the recent discovery over the past couple of decades of these techniques is really crucial. So we've only recovered these techniques really recently, but we've actually learned um, a stunning amount over the past two decades in the process. And this is actually kind of a short uh, my full lecture on annual perfections in my course is actually nine hours long. So this is the short version of sort of a version of this technique or a version of this lecture. And the more complicated Time Lord technique called zodiac releasing that I mentioned briefly earlier, that breaks up the entire life into chapters that are um, 10 or 20 or 30 years long each. Um, that lecture is like 18 hours long in my course. So these techniques actually get kind of complicated, and we've learned a lot of, about them, but there's actually still a lot more research that needs to be done. So I'm interested in recruiting more people who are interested in in studying these techniques and helping to unpack what they can actually do because there's still so much that I, I know that's left that we still need to reconstruct and figure out about them, since we've only just rediscovered them and only only like a handful of people have been using them over the course of the past couple of decades. So one of the things to me is that I think that this demonstrates the value in studying some of the older traditions, because it turns out that there were techniques that we lost that do things that we didn't know were possible and that we didn't realize that we were missing until recently. But once you figure it out, once you learn that or once you realize that, it's hard not to be interested or drawn to studying some of those older traditions. So the purpose, I don't think necessarily, and this is how I ended my book, is not to go back into the past and stay there. But instead, the purpose of studying the ancient traditions is to go back into the past, study some of the older traditions to find the techniques that are useful and complement what we're doing today and to bring them forward and integrate them with other modern traditions and modern techniques. And I believe that that can be done, and that's the work that's being done right now and me and some of my friends on the podcast have sort of demonstrated our approach to that in our own personal synthesis of some of these ancient and modern techniques over the past few years. In particular, the work that I do on the monthly forecast episodes with Austin and Kelly, the three of us I think all demonstrate part of that modern synthesis of modern and ancient techniques that we're sort of moving towards right now as a community. So, Um, Yeah, so I hope this has interested you in some of the older techniques and you'll want to study them more. So in terms of resources for further study, I definitely recommend going back and listening through some past episodes of the Astrology Podcast. I've tried to highlight a few of them during the course of this lecture to give you an idea of which ones you might want to check out in particular, but I'm sure there's a number of other early episodes that are also relevant to this technique that you might want to check out as well. Um, You can also check out my book which came out last year titled Hellenistic Astrology, the Study of Fate and Fortune. I have a a whole chapter in the book that's on annual perfections, as well as chapters on zodiac releasing, determining planetary condition through bonification and maltreatment, and and more. Uh, I also teach an online course in Hellenistic Astrology that has over 100 hours of lectures just like this one. So this is the short version of this lecture on annual perfections. The longer one is about nine hours. The zodiac releasing one is about 18 hours because some of these techniques are actually so complicated that it takes actually a while to unpack what you can do with each of them. And one of the things that I really like to do, and one of the things I wanted to demonstrate in this lecture, is how I really appreciate demonstrating how the techniques work, not just conceptually, but also showing how they work through example charts. And that's one of the reasons why. Uh, the my full Perfections lecture is nine hours long, it's because I have, I think, like 50 or 100 example charts in that lecture. And similarly, the zodiac releasing one is almost 20 hours long because I think I have over 100 example charts just in that one lecture alone. So actually demonstrating how they work in real-life example charts is really crucial for me in terms of actually teaching and showing you what you can do with these techniques. So you can sign up for the whole course, or you can sign up for for individual modules like just just the lecture on perfections or just the lecture on zodiac releasing, Uh, and you can find out more information about that at courses.theastrologyschool.com. So this month, uh, if you sign up before May 1st and you use the promo code JUPITER, uh, you actually get a 15% discount on the course. But otherwise, I try to keep them set at reasonable prices, and you can find more information on my website. So, I have like four websites. I don't know why I really need to uh, narrow it down at some point, but you can find out more information about my work at hellenisticastrology.com, com, Chris Brennan the Astrology and finally my course site, which is the School.com. All right. I think that's it for this episode and for this webinar. Thanks, everybody who attended live. I appreciate it. Uh, it looks like we've got 25 ish participants. Yeah, does anybody have any questions or comments at this point as we're we're wrapping things up? Beth asks, "Do you know when this podcast or webinar will post?" So, Austin and Kelly and I just recorded the forecast episode yesterday, but I need to rec- release this episode first. So, I'm hoping to release this episode by the end of this week and then the forecast episode will be released sometime early next week. So, this is going to be, you know, a free lecture on the astrology podcast website. Um which partially is supported by you know being able to do that by everybody who signed up on Patreon to support the podcast and donate a few dollars every time i release an episode so that's part of the reason i wanted to give a good technique lecture because even though i like to do historical talks oftentimes like the the book review we did on liz green's new book a few episodes ago i, I sometimes want to make sure that we we get in some really solid technique ep- technique episodes every once in a while as well and that's part of what i was shooting for Uh, with this episode. I also felt like it had been a while since you know, I kind of focus on interviewing other people or having other discussions a lot, and I've gotten away from doing solo shows because typically people prefer on the podcast to listen more to dialogues and discussions, and typically that's a little bit more interesting. But then as a result of that, sometimes I've gotten away from showing what my own approach to astrology is to some extent. So I wanted to do this lecture again just to remind a lot of newer people who maybe haven't been listening for a long time what my approach is and, and what some of the techniques are that I use. So Matthew asks, in addition to your own excellent work on perfection, whose current writing should we seek out on the topic? So if you do a search for annual perfections, I wonder if I can um, like share my screen really quickly. There's a great article by an astrologer named so 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 there's been a couple of students of my course who have um written articles on perfections that I really like, and in some instances they've done a better job of i don't want to say explaining it but but sometimes just presenting it in a way that's unique and I think useful that complements some of my own uh Presentations. So let me see if I can share the screen for that really quickly. Okay, so this is just a Google search for annual perfections, but one of the first results that comes up is on a website called Seven Stars Astrology. And the article is titled Astrological Predictive Techniques Perfections Intro. So this is by, uh, I forget if I can say his name, but he goes by Ant on his website. But he has a great article on perfections and he has a lot of other good articles on Hellenistic astrology. He had not been doing posts for a little bit for a few years. I think he was focusing on something else, but he's come back to it recently, which I'm excited about because he does good work on Hellenistic astrology. So that's at sevenstarsastrology.com. There's also a great um, intro to perfections on Joe Gleason's website. So if you go to amyjoegleason.com, she has an article titled Intro to Perfections. Um, and she has like a great diagram, so she's got another perfections wheel, sort of like mine, that is really useful for memorizing those perfection years. So I definitely recommend checking that out. Um, I've been making some videos on my YouTube page, so I had a little short, like ten-minute uh, video on annual perfections uh, that's worth checking out. My um, YouTube page is youtube.com/slash/theastrologyschool. So I called my YouTube channel The Astrology School, and I've been posting sort of videos on perfections and zodiac releasing and other things like that over the past year or so. So those are some ones I would recommend. I mean, there's other authors, like if you want to read through Vadius Valens, Valens has the most advanced and, and complex treatment of annual perfections that survives from the Hellenistic tradition. So, he would really be the primary go to author. The only issue with Valens is that there's a public translation by Riley, by Mark Riley, and that's the one that everybody reads at this point, but it doesn't contain diagrams or chart examples. So, Valens, one of the things that makes Valens nice is that he uses a ton of chart examples, but If you're reading Riley's translation, you basically need to have some blank charts, and you need to go through and recreate the the examples as Valens tells you. So he'll say, Valens will say, here's a chart example with Scorpio rising and Mars in Capricorn and Jupiter in Sagittarius. So you'll need to go through and like write the chart out. That way you can visualize what he's talking about. So that can be kind of a laborious process, but I would definitely recommend it because it's worth it, and you'll find the most Advanced treatment of perfections in his work in the anthology. So that's the anthology of Vadius Valens. One of the things that we did in the Hellenistic course over the past few months is we've been doing some live webinars where we've been reading through Valens' treatment of different techniques. So one of the things I did is I think we've done two webinars so far where we read through different um, chapters of Valens where he deals with perfections. And I went through and created a PDF document where I inserted the chart wheels into Riley's translation. So that's like one of the things that I try to do with the Hellenistic course in order to make some of this stuff more understandable is doing some guided readings like that from authors like Valence. Let's see, other questions. How common is it for people to use the finer technique that projects months? I mean, you don't see that many ancient astrologers mentioning it. I guess Paulus mentions it briefly, one of the issues is that even though everybody agreed on the basic approach to annual perfections and calculating the lord of the year, there was some debate about how to calculate monthly and daily perfections. There was different variants or variations of how to calculate it, including one um, one lot-like technique, a technique that was like sort of like calculating the lot of fortune, but it was used to calculate the monthly and the daily perfections. So, some of that confusion, I think, meant that not everybody calculated monthly and daily perfections, and it's made it a little bit uncertain in modern times which approach is best. Um, so, I sometimes do monthly perfections, but not very commonly, because typically I'll use zodiac releasing for studying finer periods like that. Uh, I know Robert Zoller is actually one prominent astrologer who does use monthly perfections, and he has an interesting variation of that technique where you do the yearly perfections to figure out the lord of the year, and then you perfect the months by going one month per sign from the perfected sign of the year until it reaches the sign that contains the ruler of the year. And when that happens, that will indicate the most important month in that 12-month year when the, when the ruler of the year is activated on the monthly level. So it's a little, it's a little bit complicated, but um, it's an interesting variation of the technique. All right. Well, if nobody else has any questions, then I think I should probably wrap it up because we're coming in at like two something. Oh wow, two two hours and fifteen minutes or something like that. So, um, yeah. So thanks everyone for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed this lecture. Um, If you're listening to this in the recording, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Uh, If you listen to us on iTunes, please be sure to give us a good rating on iTunes, since it'll help other people to find it. Uh, Do the same if you're watching the video on YouTube. And finally, if you want to support the podcast, then be sure to uh, sign up and become a patron on Patreon because that's how I'm able to produce so many episodes each month is through the support of patrons. So that's it for this episode. Thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time.